Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter. A health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Yeah, I'm done with my Oreo. Okay, good. Um, do we really know what happened? The brother did. The brother, that's what I thought too. I mean, that seems like kind of obvious. Hey, do you want to talk about death? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, mystery murdery thingy 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 thingy. Welcome to Mystery Murdery Thingy. Welcome to Mystery Murdery Thingy. My name is Chloe. My name is Mario. And what's up, what's up? What's Another up? Wednesday. Happy Wednesday. It's a yes. cozy Wednesday night here in Bloomington Normal. It's about nah, yeah. 35, 40 degrees. I was going to say, not as cold as it could be, but not too bad. Who's going to go first? Um, oh, we talk about mysteries and murderies and thingies. And yeah, you, you, know, you know, you like know. 94. Ooh. Ooh. We would like be to 100 already, almost, if ooh, ooh, ooh. we hadn't gone. But I think bi-weekly was ah. a good good way to go. Uh, but yeah, Shout out to the homies. <laughs> Hey, yeah. what's homies up? over hoes. Yeah. <laughs> homies over hoes. <laughs> homies over. Anyway, if you watch Boondocks, you'll get it. Um, what? Oh right, let's we're doing go, a go, podcast. Um, wait, who's go. going first? Um, I'll go first. Okay, okay. That's what I was going to say it. actually, because I'd like. Have you ever played that camp game where you just like run and try to get the bean bag or whatever that's between you? That was like what we just did, but with who's going first? That sounds and I just dangerous. took it. Well, when you're. 15, you know, what's the worst that could happen? Bang heads. You could get killed. Okay, so I'm going to talk about... That's appropriate, because people get killed in my story. It's not oh, funny. Is this a murdery? Yeah, I'm going back to murdery. So I, I kind of realized I'd, you know, strayed away from that, you know, one of our central pillars of mysteries, and, and I figured it was time to talk about some uh, murder, and specifically another unsolved serial killer. <laughs> Quote, I feel like it was time to talk about some murder. Well, you know, sometimes <laughs> you just got to talk about some murder, you know. Um, <laughs> so when you do a podcast that involves that, um, so yeah, we're turning to some more murdery material. Um, we're going to be talking about the Volga maniac. Um, Ooh. we're talking about Volga in Russia, in um, you know, sort of Western Russia, and uh, also known as the city of Kazan serial strangler. Uh, quite a serial strangler, as we'll Yo. come to see, and um. Yeah, the 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 maniac um was 
active in the Volga and the Ural Federal Districts in Western Russia. So the, it's the Volga River and the Ural Mountains. So this is the part of Russia, because, you know, Russia is like, obviously the biggest country in the world, super fucking huge, right? But um, this is the part that's like closer to Europe and closer to the Balkans and like that kind of stuff. So from early 2011 to late 2012, and um, maybe more recently as well, the uh, Volga maniac was responsible for at least 32 victims. What? Yeah. They know for sure? Well, they're pretty closely linked in terms of the victimology and the MO, the modus operandi. So it, it really heavily implies a serial, serial, single serial killer. Is that what I was trying to say? Single serial killer. Or single serial strangler. Really hard to say for some reason. Yes, particularly a a serial strangler. Um, So the victims also were, you know, like I said, the victimology was really tight as well. So they were always elderly people, um, over 75, usually women, um, unless there's like, there were, it seemed like it was either women or couples. And, um, there was also one of the, you know, because the, the Volga maniac, you have to understand, the the way that he works, right, is he's apparently charming, kind of like one of these Ted Bundy kind of types. Mm-hmm. And what he does is he would go up to the residents of these various um, um, sort of low-rent apartment blocks that are known as uh, Khrushchevskas. Uh, which comes from uh, Khrushchev, right? These sort of like, um, li- literally the Soviet, you know, up style apartment blocks that, okay. that people sort of like, if you've ever been on a college campus, somebody's like, oh, this looks like Soviet style apartment blocks. Like these are the actual ones from back in the 60s or whatever that people are still living in, right? Never have I ever heard anybody say that. And I just got out of college. <laughs> well, obviously, Illinois State University doesn't have bad, uh, you know, uh, brutalist architecture. Nor well, did nor did Davidson. Well... well at least not to, to too large of an extent. <laughs> so, he, you know, would go up to, basically, these people's doors, or when they were going home, right, and he would, uh, we know, probably case them, right? He would stalk his victims, probably learn their patterns of behavior, and then he would pose as a sort of um, HOA official, right? A, a home, like a representative of the homeowners association or of the landlord, you know, some kind of like, I need to check something with you or I need to let you know about this, like, let me come in for tea or whatever. Ugh. And that's how he would gain access, right? And like I said, he apparently had reportedly good communication skills, um, it seems. And there was actually one of the victims that, early victims that survived, but she couldn't actually identify the the killer because she was actually blind, like already blind. So there, there was, you know, she couldn't see anything at all. So she couldn't see the killer, obviously. But she, but she also didn't die. One of the very few. I, but the only one that I heard of that actually survived. So this MO, um, you know, allowed him to, you know, get kind of, as we were talking about, rack up this, like, 32 victims, right? And it's also because he was just kind of, like, moving between this, like, fairly large area, um, you know, go to Google Maps, look up, you know, the the Ural District, the Volga District, and various cities like uh, Samara, Chelyabinsk, uh, Yekaterinburg, and, of course, Kazan. And the, the majority, or not the majority, but a large number of the victims were in Kazan, and that's why that 
kind of came into that name, which is, I believe it said the capital of uh, Tatarstan, um, which is like the, the Tatar region. If you've ever heard of that uh, ethnic I, group of people. I've never heard of any of these cities. Well, Chelyabinsk is kind of um, famous because there, there was, I think that's where there was that um, uh, me- meteor that came down in Chelyabinsk. Oh. And then Yekaterinburg, I remember being like one of the, the things on risk. <laughs> that's my that's you know that's my um <laughs> that's you know, reference there. point for geography right <laughs> i played risk and that was i remember yekaterinburg was one of them um so anyway he he kind of moved between all these different cities right and fairly large cities like i i think uh kazan is like a million and a half people oh, or wow. something right so not super big but big enough where you can kind of blend in right and and move and apparently the volga maniac was like pretty good at blending in as well as part of his uh, kind of M.O. So once the maniac um, entered the victim's home, right, gained their confidence, entered the home, then he would usually find some kind of ad hoc weapon, right? Um, A a scarf, uh, pantyhose, um, you know, just anything that's at hand that he could use to strangle. And um, then the victim's home would be burglarized. But the authorities believe that the m- that murder was the main motive. That it wasn't like a... You know how we talked about with the Denver Strangler? It seemed like maybe this was like a kind of a robbery. And then they were trying to hide their tracks by making it look like a gruesome murder. Mm. This one seems like it was the opposite. Oh. Um, but not necessarily trying to hide his tracks. But it And it also... It was weird. Sometimes he would pose the victims... Like with objects of theirs that he would pose next to the body, and That's like weird. and like place them. So there's some weird stuff going on. Um, you know, we talk about he's right, trying to relive some kind of fantasy. Yeah, like we we like. talk about process and product, right? The, the, you know, this seems like he was a little bit of both, right? He had a very methodical lead up. The whole thing was obviously very planned out, but also there was, you know, like you're saying, some element of. Uh, you know, tokenism or or a reliving of a past um, failure or something where, you know, maybe in the killer's mind, and again, we only talk about these things to try to understand, understand them better to stop them, right? Yeah. But maybe in the killer's mind, right, he was driven to do this because, and they, you know, there was some um, psychological profiling done as well, maybe was raised by a grandmother who was abusive or maybe, you know, had a very bad relationship with his mother or something like that, you know, and trying to sort of do these things to, to in some warped sense in their uh, mind, right? Yeah. Gain that control that they lost in that moment or so, or something like that, right? Well, no, obviously, well, even if this person were caught, we probably would never know exactly, you know, why they do it. Um, but... The, okay, so the, I was going to say, the other thing is, he would always lock the door from the inside, and then leave. So he would, and, and the the one where um, the woman s- survived, I think it was, or maybe it was a different one. No, 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 sorry, it was, it, was, it was another early one where the son of the victim actually came home as the strangler was still in the apartment. Oh my god. So, had just committed the murder, right, doing his usual thing of finding things to burglarize or move around for whatever fucking reason and here's the son knocking on the door and then jumps out a second floor window what and the by fuck? the son by the time the son knocked down the door he was long gone oh my god so this guy he's he's crafty he's obviously agile you know they they theorized he's got to be a man in his 20s to 30s you know something like that is there like a that. sexual component 
I never heard anything about that at all. It reminds me a little bit of the Golden State Killer, but with the breaking into the home and the right and and the the strangling, yeah. you know, with with objects that they. Now, I don't believe the Golden State Killer's victimology was as as uh, focused. That was a. Uh, it was. It seemed like it was maybe, but but the Golden State Killer would also track the victims, which is you know also similar. So anyway, like I said, this approach was you know sadly very effective. You know, thirty-two, you know, thought you know purported murders in this um, you know quote unquote two reign of terror, two year reign of terror, um, as the Siberian Times put it in uh, twenty thirteen. Um, and while the authorities knew, you know, the general kind of place that the maniac would strike, right? You'd think, oh, well, they could just stake out these places, right? But like I said, he was continually roaming over different cities and um, was rarely seen and left very little evidence. Not wow, no evidence, though. Very... Not no evidence. Um, oh. But but you're right. He, he's, he was careful, obviously. Um, so according, again, to the Siberian Times, the killer's presumed DNA was um, actually taken at one of the murder scenes in 2012 on a handkerchief and a light. So they apparently, if it still, you know, was stored properly and everything, have the DNA on file. And there is, um, purportedly of the killer, right? And there is CCTV. <gasps> CCTV! CCTV! <laughs> I, I even wrote it in my write-up here. I knew you were going to do that. We've been watching a lot of Caught on Camera lately. It's so. on Netflix. I think everybody should watch it. It's, it's, it's one of the better shows of that kind, I'd say. So anyway, not to make light of the situation, but CCTV footage that um, authorities purport shows the killer. Wow. And then there was that's a... That's powerful, if yeah, that's the case. Exactly. I mean, you think that that would have helped things move along right and there was actually a reconstruction of the face of the you know purported face of the killer oh, wow. um created using that footage and that's been widely circulated you can find it very easily just search for volga maniac that's like the first thing that's going to come up eventually a footprint and a fingerprint were also found despite this and an eventual three million ruble reward which is like 60 grand or something in american dollars no arrests and no solid spot su suspects arose wow there were reported sightings of a man fitting the description. Um, the description being a, like a nondescript, you know, apparently kind of um, plain looking, medium height, thin build between the sort of 20s to 30s, um, not Slavic, uh, you know, i.e. white, uh, mm -hmm. Russian white, you know, that seems like this person is maybe a, a Tatar, Kazakh, or Kyrgyz, or, you know, some other type of. Um, you know, not not to ethnically profile per se, right? But just that's from what the person actually looked like. That's what it seems. So yeah, that um, the person was seen, like I said before, kind of seeming to case out, kind of really creepily standing like next to a you know a building, just like looking uh, and seemingly at you know the person they were going to victimize. Yeah, no, that's a huge yeah. No, I know it's like crazy. It's like. When you're swimming in the ocean, you don't know a fucking shark is 20 feet below you. But it's a person in real life in a city. Yeah, that's 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 how this stuff is scarier than horror movies. <laughs> I know, because it real. actually happened. Yeah, because it did. It had, you know, it happened. Yeah. Um, so anyway, according to a, a, another source, the website Crime Russia, I'm going to read kind of a couple of extended quotes here. Um, quote, Experts also composed a psychological profile on the serial killer. He grew up in a broken family, 
raised by his grandmother or an elderly family relative, according to the profile. He may have committed other crimes and completed vocational education. He is not sociable, but knows pensioners' psychology. All the victims were strangled by hand or with household items, a broom, pillow, apron, clothesline, iron cord, etc. The serial killer also attacked from the back and stole money or valuables. However, he always left some type of victim's ID next to them. For example, he considerately placed one victim's medical history next to her body. This is what the murders have in common. He usually locked his victim's apartments when leaving. The serial killer used knitted gloves for all the murders. Close quote. Ooh, knitted gloves? So this is kind of where, some of what I was talking about earlier, yeah, and, and the knitted gloves, you know, that's where, you know, it, it prevents the fingerprints, and yeah. he's obviously being careful, and locking the door, and like all this different kind of weird stuff. Um, and then um, to kind of like close out the what's you know seems to be the the first you know round of these murders um the the um uh last ones the, the last three particularly occurred between september 25th and 27th of 2012 in uh, a city called ufa but the invest investigation continued um and continues actually the first reward of a million rubles was offered in 2013 um, so when, you know, it wasn't even clear that things necessarily had stopped yet, mm -hmm. um, or at least ceased, um, for a time, investigators believed that the maniac may have been hiding out in the far east of Russia, in this um, uh, island called Sak Saklin Oblast. What makes them think that? I, I'm not sure. Um, and, and, and you know, uh, some of these sources, were a lot of them were in Russian, so mm -hmm. um, there may have been more details in those kind of things, but... It's a little hard for me to access, um, but that lead ran dry. You know, it didn't. It didn't seem to actually go anywhere. So whatever led them there, it didn't seem to to actually pan out. A purported sighting on video occurred on October seventh of twenty sixteen, but the authorities denied that it was actually the killer. This is not the one that they made the the thing from. This is like a, a different one. But early, um, by early twenty seventeen, um, authorities believed that the maniac. Uh, may have um, settled in Udmursha in the Volga, so which is you know closer to where the murders were actually occurring, and they also came to believe that the killer may have had access to government information, like about pensioners, essentially giving him like a list of victims to to kind of go through, and that may have helped facilitate you know like we talked like the sheer number. You know, one can't lose sight of the, the sheer human tragedy, right? Yeah. Of, like, 32, you know, human beings being taken away, like, from their families and everything. I mean, literally, like I said, that one person's son being there, right there, to find, you know, be the first person on the scene. You know, it's 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 a um, it's a, a, a sensational, you know, act that this person has I done, but you, it, you can't lose the sense of tragedy before. or... Yeah, and and it's it's funny, right? It's so huge. I mean, it's thirty-two murders. Like that's, I don't know. Like there really aren't that many serial killers, right? That have racked up that many confirmed kills. Yeah. But um, I don't know. You know, in in a time, I guess. I mean, what is uh, his that it, fucker's name? Sam Little or whatever. Oh, Who, gross! It, what is it like ninety-five or something? I don't know if y'all have heard about this. The lar the the most number of seemingly confirmed 
yeah. serial and he, kills like, of all time. Them. He has like sketches of them, and he and apparently remembers in detail every single one. Yeah, and there's still like ones that are unidentified. You can like go look at the pictures, right? But he's already given details on about fifty or oh, that's so more. Nasty. Yeah, um, no, it's really crazy. And and didn't he just give himself up? I think, or maybe did they find him through the genealogical DNA? Mm, I know that he, I know that he started talking. Right. Yeah. I don't know. But yeah, like I said, you know, when things like that are coming up, you know, I guess it's a little hard to find perspective, but it's also because it's in Russia. I mean, how much, how often do we hear about true crime stuff from Russia? True. Not that often. And I kind of realized that when I was researching this too, I was like, oh yeah, I mean, I've done stories and I've done stories from Russia. Happening in Russia. But it, it, I've done mostly stuff about like the government in Russia because the government, the government's so crazy, you know, <laughs> they're doing its own, you know, crazy, mysterious bullshit all over the fucking world. So, you know, it's, it's hard. It's sometimes you lose perspective of the Russian people. Right, yeah. which is crazy because it's one of the uh, by population as well, one of the biggest countries in the world, one of the most diverse countries in the world, um, and everything else. Right, with with a, a you know a wonderful history, um, but we lose that human connection. I think when when our two countries are seemingly at odds with each other. Right, so yeah, the I mean these thirty two babushkas who were taken away from their grandsons and their granddaughters and their sons and daughters and everyone else is a real, you know, human tragedy. Um, and, but, you know, and to their credit, it seems like the authorities have not given up on it at all. But, like I said, also kind of tragically as well, the killing may not have actually stopped. Because there were, um, according to the Daily Star, uh, two more murders um, very recently, like in the past few months, that may... Um, yeah, be connected to the killer as well. They 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 fit again the ammo and the victimology very very well. Um, and I should say four, not not two actually. Oh my. Just um, double the number like that. Okay, sorry. It's okay. So, yeah, um, the, it was a sixty eight year old woman and her seventy two year old husband who were strangled. And then this one is actually a little bit different with the mo. Um, according to the Daily Star, quote. Three days later, a husband and wife, aged 82 and 83, were axed to death, 110 miles away in the same region, close quote. So whether these recent murders are truly a recurrence, you know, are connected to the Volga maniac, obviously that's not known. The whole thing is very much mysterious. It could very well be multiple, you know, copycat killers. They say the Volga maniac may actually be a copycat killer of a female serial strangler that was um, active just before this. That's not a mystery, but, um, yeah, so, I don't know what the hell's going on, but, it, yeah, if you live in a Krushkova in, you know, one of these towns, my god, don't let the HOA man in without checking his credentials, or really, really well, please, oh my god. Oh, holy So, that's my story for this week. That was good, um, scary. Yeah, no, it's, it's really, it's really creepy, I mean, I... That someone very well make, may make a horror movie about it. I mean, it's, it is a horror movie, a literal horror movie. So, anyway, my sources were um, an unsigned story from the Siberian Times, Henry Holloway at the Daily Star, that's the UK Daily Star, Wikipedia, the Volcomaniac page, Brad Hunter at Toronto Sun, and that website, Crime Russia. Very good. Very good. Mine's also pretty scary if you think about 
what it must be like to to be trapped in an underwater cave. Oh, is this why you were talking about that? Yes. Oh. <laughs> okay. You showed me that sign earlier. Yes. <laughs> okay. Yes. Okay. Um Sorry, you don't know what we're talking yes. about. <laughs> we we I am talking about the disappearance of Ben McDaniel. Um he was 30 year 30 years old when he went to do some deep cave diving at Vortex Springs, one of Florida's largest freshwater diving areas. Um and he was never found. He disappeared. So let's get into this. Um, so Ben McDaniel was born to Shelby and Patty McDaniel, and he is the oldest of three boys. And he was actually somebody who always liked swimming. His family took vacations to the beach, um, specifically in Destin, Florida, which I looked up. There's a lot of like really nice retirement communities like right mm. on the beach in Florida beautiful maybe we'll go sometime uh, <laughs> that would be nice <laughs> uh he started scuba diving when he was really young when he was 15 and he actually liked to test like his his tanks in the in the pool in his family's pool in the few years prior to his disappearance he was actually on like a life sabbatical that was recommended by his parents so he, the sabbatical, he's living at his parents' beach home in Santa Rosa Beach in the Emerald Coast of the Flora Panhandle. <laughs> do, 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 you have won! <laughs> you sound like you're tell selling a timeshare. You have won! On the beautiful coast in the... Uh, Santa Rosa Beach in the Emerald Coast of the Florida Panhandle. <laughs> yeah, they were very wealthy. Uh, he was going through a tough time in his life. He had moved back into to live with his parents after a rough divorce and his construction business failed. He owed the IRS $48,861 and the state of Tennessee $1,177 in unpaid taxes. So dude was mm. really, really down on his luck. And uh, he, even worse, he had been mourning the loss of his younger brother, Paul. Uh, they were really close. They often went rock climbing together. Paul was 22, and he was the youngest brother. Um, there are three of them, and Paul was the youngest. In 2008, Ben came home to find Paul unconscious after having a stroke. He later died in the hospital. 22. He was mm. only 22. Yeah. Um, at, at this point, though, uh, his life was looking up. He had a new girlfriend named Emily Greer, and she was a biologist. Um, he was diving all the time and he was trying to get a job as a scuba instructor. He even took uh, a survey course and was mapping out, was actually specific map specifically mapping out the caves at Vortex Spring. So Wednesday, August 18th, 2010, it was a very hot day at Vortex Spring, a high of 90 degrees and the water temperature at 68 degrees. Um... Ben was seen by people during the day uh, testing his equipment and jotting things down in his dive log. Two other divers, Eduardo Terran and Chuck Cronin, they were actually the last divers to see Ben that night. So um, they were closing up shop as Ben was like putting on his helmet and like going into dive. Um, Tanan and Cronin um, were friends who went diving at the Vortex every Wednesday night. Um, I think Tanan is the one who... Um, Eduardo... No, Eduardo Taran is the one who 
takes care of the shop. I think so. The dive shop. And, uh, yeah, so they go diving every Wednesday night. That's what they were doing when they saw Ben. Uh, Cronin told investigators that Ben had been going on about how much he knew about diving and how he had all the right gear, but he still wasn't certified. And Cronin kind of thought Ben was full of himself. Uh, Cronin told deputies as well that he and, um, uh, Tehran noticed that someone had been tampering with the gate. They suspected that it had, that it had been Ben because there is a gate that, um, blocks a very dangerous area that goes much deeper into the cave and you have to show proper certification at to the clerk at the dive shop to get the key to open mm. the gate. Um, and certification requires two months training, including, including 125 dives with a certified instructor. So it's wow. no joke. Ben was not certified. Um, after they, uh, after they um, saw Ben that night... Cronin and Tehran went to Tehran's house for coffee, and they didn't hear anything else until that Friday. It was uh, Friday, so two days later, when um, Tehran called the sheriff's office and was like, hey, Ben's truck is still in the parking lot. Uh, this Also, they noted that this place is a very touristy area. There's about 30,000 people that come through all the time, and that's why they didn't really notice that his truck was still there on hmm. Thursday. Oh, okay. So he w disappeared Wednesday night, Thursday, and then they called in on Friday. Uh, they searched the truck. His wallet was there. His phone was there. They found over $700 in cash. Uh, his diving log book with his hand-drawn map of the cave was also there. Uh, so I want to talk about the cave because the, my, one of my main sources, um, an article in the Tampa Bay, Tampa Bay Times by mm -hmm. Ben Montgomery uh, really did a good description of, of, of the cave. So uh, the mouth of the cave begins at 50 feet below the surface. About 300 feet into the cave is the locked gate that blows off that like blocks off, sorry, blocks off a narrow and dangerous, very dangerous tunnel. Mm -hmm. um, and I like to think about scuba diving and like water and feet in that like i think the deepest pool i've ever been in was like 15 feet and it took all of me to get to the bottom right so like 50 feet is where the cave starts and 300 feet in is where the tunnel starts jesus um the tightest areas in the cave are 10 inches from floor to ceiling and divers have to wear their tanks like on their sides to squeeze through. Oh and there's a warning sign, the sign that I showed you, mm -hmm. there's a warning sign right before the gate. Um, the bottom reading quote, there's nothing in this cave worth dying for. Do not go beyond this point. End quote. In the 1980s, a total of 13 people had died down there. Um, currently, so, you know, lots of safety has been implemented since then. And currently about six people die each year from underwater caves worldwide. Okay. Um, but note, note that underwriting, underwater cave diving is fucking dangerous every time you do it. It's, it's dark in there. Um, that shit could collapse. Your equipment could malfunction. You can get lost. Like all kinds of no no yeah. it freaks me out right you and i are both scared you talk about how you're scared of open water right right, right. Yeah. i don't like to get too far into the middle of the pool so 
<laughs> I mostly just like to stay where my tiny five foot frame can hold me. So, you, would you ever go scuba diving? No, no, I don't think so. I think I would. It's it seems like a terrible idea. I don't know why anyone would want to do it. Honestly, I would. But I I would want to skydive, and you don't want to do that. Weird, <laughs> right? I don't want to skydive. Maybe the you want to be reason- a fish, and I want to be a bird. <laughs> no, I don't think I want to be a fish. Not in today's ocean. Not in today's <laughs> Not, ocean. Oh my god. Terrible. I'm sorry. Right. But That's l- so like uh sad but also oh flippant at the same Let time. us continue. Okay. Um so the search, and this was a very wide scale search and it was dangerous. The search itself was dangerous. Mm-hmm. Um, on Friday, police checked McDaniel's house only to find his dog alone and hungry because he hasn't he mm-hmm. hadn't been fed in two days. Um, cadaver dogs alerted to possible human rena- remains on the surface. Uh, professional divers searched until midnight uh, Saturday morning and had to postpone the recovery because they needed more skillful divers to mm-hmm. go to go to continue to search. Um, they really didn't think that Ben had gone that far, but I, there was no cert- there was no they didn't find him yet, so they must ha- he must yeah. have gone further than anybody really thought. The only thing that was found was two decompression tanks at the cave entrance. Quote, the mapped portion of the cave ends at a narrow restriction above 150 feet deep and 1,500 feet of mostly horizontal penetration about the length of five football fields. The tiny hole as small as 10 inches from floor to ceiling is the last known restriction. Some divers say it's impassable. Some say you can get in, but you won't get out. End quote. That's from the Tampa Bay Times. Mm. Um, this search and rescue dive mission, you know, it was wild. Numerous divers with decades of experience risk their lives during this search, including a man named Ed Sorensen, a professional rescue diver who had at that point done over 2,500 dives. He was bombarded with calls from other divers who had searched the vortex and he needed to go search for himself. Mm. Uh, despite the high risk and word from an official with the International Underwater Cave Rescue and Recovery Organization told him, don't go, he searched Vortex Springs that Sunday. Mm. The map shows up to 1,500 feet deep and Sorensen reached 1,700 feet deep, 200 feet off the map. He used what first he used to get down there. Actually, he used one of those water scooter, like oh, yeah. things to right, save right. air. I've seen those, and yeah. to maneuver um, to the tunnel quicker. So then he like ditched it and went himself into mm-hmm. the search the tighter areas. He didn't see anything. Found nothing. He told the commercial appeal, "Quote: I know what I'm doing, and I barely made it through. The last place I searched was pristine, without a mark that a diver had been there. It would be impossible to go through that restriction without making a mark on the floor or ceiling. He's not in there." End quote. Mm. Yeah. Weird, because yeah, I was kind of wondering how this is going to end up being that much of a mystery if he's just like probably lost in the cave somewhere, but. At least not where they've been looking, I guess. It yeah. seems very strange that they wouldn't be able to find him. Exactly. It's it's weird. Weeks go by, still nothing. The McDaniel family pushes for divers from all over to search the cave. Uh, some of the most experienced divers from all over the country come to search. They, st- they all say the same thing, that he's not down there. There is some controversy that stirs during this. 
the McDaniels offer a $10,000 reward for anyone brave enough to search further. Um, the dive community felt they were in, that the McDaniels were insinuating cowardice, even after many divers had risked their lives searching. Yeah. Despite the concerns, they increased the reward twice. Unfortunately, two days before Investigation Discovery aired their disappeared episode about Ben, a diver from Biloxi, Mississippi, Larry Higginbottom, died in Vortex Spring. Um, his body was recovered the next day. Mm-hmm. However, w- there's no confirmation that he specifically went looking to okay. find Ben McDaniel. Sure. Just It was just a tragedy, period. Yeah. The, the McDaniels later rescinded the reward money. The sheriff's office uh, borrowed an undercover camera to explore the cave and give the family themselves a chance to look at and, and search for any signs of Ben, but it would only got about 1,300 feet. They even got Steve Keen, a diver who, back in 2003, had spent more than 100 hours mapping the cave with a team, quote, the man who laid the dive line to the end, end quote. He did seven dives for, um, he alone did seven dives for Mr. Uh, ben and didn't find any anything. Quote, if he's in there, I don't know where he'd be, end quote. There wasn't any evidence in in the water that a body had decomposed. Specialists tested the water to see if there was a spike in bacteria that's consistent with decomposition, but they didn't find anything. They called on a helicopter to search the swamps downstream in the forest to no luck. Um, one of the main theories that eventually went around was if Ben McDaniel was even dead in the first place. Right. Uh, could he have possibly left later that night without anybody noticing? However, I don't I don't, my theory is that he's got to be down there somewhere. I don't know if there's, maybe there's an area that collapsed that they didn't notice. I don't know. But it doesn't, to me, to me, and as as well as the family, it doesn't make sense for him to to really get up and leave. Um, you know, he was really, he was, he did have a, he was just getting over a rough patch in his life. And at this point for two years, he had been like really working hard. You know, he had his girlfriend. He was... Um, you know, living in uh, Santa Rosa Beach, you know. Um, Even though he had financial started. troubles, it wasn't like he was, like, um, wanting for money, right? Right, right, exactly. He wasn't desperate, yeah. or it didn't seem like he would be desperate. Exactly. Um, also, like, his, there were no bank account activities, uh, no right. sightings. His phone was in the, was in the truck. He didn't take his phone with him. Um, so if he disappeared, he, like, just, what, w- went to live in the mountains or something? Yeah. Right? Like, or, yeah. Yeah. It's very, it's very weird. Um, Chuck Cronin and Ed Sorensen believe that Ben's not in the cave at all. Hmm. Uh, so the family kind of went to foul play. They're like, eventually... They were like, if he didn't die from drowning in the cave, so it must have been murder. So they set up a phone tip line. No results. Lowell Kelly, the owner of Vortex Spring, said shortly afterwards that on that evening, a man he described as, quote, wild-eyed and apparently drunk showed up at the shop and asked, hey, man, is it too late to dive? Um, Was this man, even if he existed, involved somehow? (laughs) Uh, it was the drunken man. I know. Yeah, I don't uh, know. It seems like a red herring. The last theory is the most implausible, besides that um, yeah. he was eaten by a sea monster. Okay. Uh, also earlier that day, a diver had 
uh, had had a confrontation with some other teenagers on the property about them drinking, and then they eventually left. But did they come back to exact revenge? They were probably Satanist teenagers. Uh, That's probably what it was. Shut (laughs) up. This is 2010. (laughs) There's been a Satanist trope for a lot, forever. (laughs) That is correct. Um, But yeah. No, but it's like when you think about it, it's like, well, how could he not be down there? But then it's like, how could he be down there? Yeah. It's like, if all of these, all of these like professional divers said they had, they, it has been searched thoroughly. That's what all of the reports really like. They literally couldn't search it anymore without almost certainly killing or seriously hurting themselves. Correct. And therefore, what he intentionally went into an area where it would have been completely obvious to someone who knew about diving. That it that he was gonna die or be in serious harm of injury, like yeah. that also doesn't make sense. <laughs> his his girlfriend said that his ego's too big to to straight up disappear too to like go off and start a new life. She's like he wasn't do that. His ego's too nah. His ego's too big. <laughs> it's just it seems like an episode of the X Files, you know, it's or weird. or Twin Peaks or something. It's, it's like, very weird. Yeah, but tell me more about sea monsters. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> I didn't expand on that. What? There is a weird theory, though, which I didn't... I thought this was kind of pulling at strings. Lowell, uh, Lowell Kelly, the owner of Vortex Springs, uh, Vortex Spring, died in 2011 quite mysteriously, actually. The story goes that he fell down, fell down the stairs, hit his head, and someone, we don't know who, helped him get home, take a shower, and then left him to sleep in the bathtub with a towel on his head. He was found the next morning unconscious, comatose, he was taken to the hospital and then um about few a few weeks later he was taken to hospice where he died the police office was investigating this one the homes the homes county sheriff's office also investigated Bing McDaniel's disappearance however they refused to release the autopsy report to a certain news source said hey like can we get the out for our journal whatever they refused even though it's public record because of the sunshine laws but they claimed that releasing it would compromise the ongoing investigation hmm so there's an investigation exactly see that's when that's when you get an answer even by getting no answer it's like well why can't you tell me Oh, well, that tells me something. There's an investigation. There's an investigation. Okay. It's well, going to. Who's the in, what Natalie is, will harm the investigation. So, did, did they say what the coroner determined, or did the coroner not make a determination? We don't know. Okay. That also is maybe under seal. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe the coroner filed it under seal or something, or yeah. the ME or whatever. Well, that's a pretty crazy mystery. Yeah, it's a good one, right? Yeah. My source was Wikipedia. Um, Tampa Bay Times article by Ben Montgomery, a uh, historic mysteries mysteries dot com article by Jim H, and random clips from the disappeared episode on Investigation Discovery. Right, good old ID channel. Good old ID channel that everyone lives so well. Um. Do you have any weird shit in the news? Because I found one while you were starting your story. Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> okay. My, mine is from the AP Odd News page, and it is entitled, Shocked? 
Electric eels power. Electric eel powers aquariums. Christmas Shut. lights. Shocked? <gasps> no it's, way. Uh, you were shocked. Look at you. I, I saw your face. So this is in Chattanooga, Tennessee. Chattanooga. Chattanooga, where Blanche from the Golden Girls is always talking about getting uh, her getting up to all kinds of stuff, and uh, that she does, which is great. And that's uh, what it says here. The the kind of first line: uh, Visitors to the Tennessee Aquarium may be shocked to learn that an electric eel named Miguel Watson is lighting up a Christmas tree, close quote. So apparently there's a special system which connects the Christmas tree to the tank and extracts the little electrical impulses that the eel emits as you know as part of its sense it, eels actually have a fifth sense uh which is no, interesting. they don't do no, they they do and other creatures have this That's too where, where they they create a uh electric this is why they're electric eels they create an, an electric field and they use that to detect right just like we use you know the bouncing of light to detect our sight, right, and the bouncing of uh, sound waves to detect in our ears. They use the bouncing of electrical waves or whatever, right? So, yeah, it's interesting. And in this case, also very Christmassy. So, happy Christmas. I, there was one... Or whatever you celebrate or don't celebrate. There was a remove, there was a, a murdery one, but I don't remember what it is. Okay. I'm gonna find it. It's too late now. It's too late now. Thanks for listening, you guys. Thanks for listening. Check us out on all of the social media. I've been running our Twitter page, putting out sources. Our Instagram page has been dead. Yeah. Um, So uh, go to getting on it at Murdery Thingy, and my page is at Mario Text Thirty and Chloe Instagramming maybe some more. It's not that hard to find me on Twitter. You can find me if you really want to. At me, bro. (laughs) Okay, I think we're done. Goodbye. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.